details of my life are quite inconsequential. Read my lips. If you have sex, your penis will fall off and land in another dimension populated entirely by dogs who will eat it. Well, that's something I'd like to avoid. I want you to listen to me. I'm going to say this again. I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. I'm a paladin with 18 charisma and 97 hit points. I can use my helm of disintegration and do 1d4 damage as my half-elf mage wields his plus five holy avenger. And as president, I'm going to make it impossible for congressmen or lobbyists to slip pork barrel projects or corporate welfare into laws when no one's looking. Because when I'm president, meetings where laws are written will be more open to the public, no more secrecy. That's a commitment I make to you as president. The Michael Graff Show. It is my opinion he is a danger to himself and others and is in need of treatment. Finally, a guy in broadcasting that represents the very average side of us all. The following broadcast is in the hands of a college-educated, barely-employed guy that does a podcast for an audience of fewer people than Paris Hilton has brain cells. It's hard to imagine that he's perpetually single. Now, from the middle of desert Urbania, this is Michael Groff in Exile. wonder what we're going to be talking about today. As if. <laughs> All right, welcome in. Another edition of Michael Groff in Exile is on the air. It's Tuesday, March 23rd, 2010. A beautiful day outside. Man, this, this global warming is something else. What is it, like 55 degrees and pouring rain here in the middle of March, toward the end of March in Phoenix? I know, it's something, huh? All right. Uh, we have a smattering of things to talk about. Before I get to the obvious main thing, we... Oh, there's a lot here. We've got Ben Roethlisberger news. It's beginning to get a little bit more serious uh, for the overrated Pittsburgh Steelers quarterback. He... As you may know... He is facing sexual assault, well, actually sexual battery charges in the state of Georgia, and the Pittsburgh Steelers not too happy about it. Roger Goodell of the NFL says, uh, the commissioner of the NFL says, there's, there's a problem here, and there could be possible discipline as a result of this. Other things go, oh, Tiger Woods made an appearance over the weekend uh, a couple of places on ESPN and on the Golf Channel. He had a big interview. It was Tiger Woods TV. Tiger, he's coming back to the Masters in just a couple of weeks. That's going to be a media circus. And then, yeah, there are people that weren't happy about that appearance. And I'm so done with Tiger. I really... Why do people feel entitled to an explanation from Tiger Woods? I really have to know why anybody feels like they're owed an explanation from Tiger, as if somehow 
he owes you an explanation for anything at all. Meanwhile, he owes you nothing. All right. And the we have a lot of other things, these stupid news stories we have to get to. Random sports observation. I have to get to it. This is just very random. It's very local, but I just have to hit this because I just find this fascinating. And, and get ready because those of you that say that I don't like hockey or that I don't ever talk about hockey... Well, uh, open up your ears because this might be the first time I ever make it into the intro of the show talking hockey. The Phoenix Coyotes. And this is a national story, as, as national as a story about hockey can possibly be. The Phoenix Coyotes. Was, this was a team that didn't even have a coach. I brought this up last week, too. I know I'm talking about hockey twice in a week. The Phoenix Coyotes didn't even have a coach when training camp started earlier this year. And now they are tied for first in the Western Conference. Now, why is that even significant? Well, it's significant because this was an organization that no one knew where it was going to even be located uh, during the offseason. This was a team that was, that's been in bankruptcy court. It is a team that is now owned by the National Hockey League. It is a team that looked like it was on the brink of financial collapse. They were going to be going to... Uh, somewhere in, God knows, uh, Hamilton, Ontario, some godforsaken place in Canada, you know, and, and they were going to be moved, bought out by some dude, or maybe Jerry Reinsdorf was going to get him, but somebody was going to come along and purchase this team. So it was a team in disarray. They made seven trades at the deadline, much to the chagrin of other teams in the NHL. And now here they are. They are first in the Western Conference, tied for first in the Western Conference with the Blackhawks. And, and it's a team now that has a, uh, that had, what, a capacity crowd the other night, standing room only crowd the other night. Finally, some people are showing up for hockey games here in Phoenix. It's somewhat relevant in the Valley again. It's, it, and it's really, it's good for the NHL that a story like this happens. And it's good that uh, for the local economy, it's good for the economy of the NHL that this kind of story continues. So I, I just thought I would bring that out there. Again, it's sort of a, it's a very local story. And here I am on a, on a national show kind of talking about it. But I, I really, I, I, I'm truly fascinated by this story. So I thought I'd throw that out there just before we got started with everything else. All right. Obviously, the top shelf story here that we need to talk about first and foremost is health care. It is the story that we have been talking about for months and months, seemingly every single show. It seems to be the story that never goes away and immediately lets out a groan from some people who are just tired of hearing about it. You know, it's gotten so ridiculous before I even get into the crux of the story. It's gotten so out of hand that I'm not turning on sports radio shows and they're talking about health care. And um, there's nothing worse than hearing like a, a sports talk show host that knows very little. They might know some rotisserie stats. They may be a guy that knows the NFL. They might know the NBA. Uh, they might know that Kevin Durant went off for 45 points last night. That's fine. But I don't want to hear those guys talking about health care. When I turn on sports radio, I want to hear about sports. I don't want to hear about health care. Instead, I've heard everything but 
sports on Sports Talk Radio lately. I've heard about Tiger Woods and his infidelity. I know that's somewhat of a sports-related issue because he's in golf. It's a sports-related thing, sort of. But I don't care. I really don't. I, I got to tell you, I really don't want to hear about Tiger Woods. Not on a sports show. I, if, if you're going to talk about Tiger Woods, why don't you talk about Tiger Woods going to the Masters? And why don't you talk about golf-related stuff as it pertains to Tiger Woods? I mean, we've heard enough of the, of the tabloid crap, the yellow journalism as it pertains to Tiger Woods. So it's enough there. And then I hear about Sandra Bullock and, and Jesse James or whatever the hell that guy's name is. And I'm hearing about uh, celebrity gossip on sports radio. When I tune into sports radio, I want to hear about sports. God forbid that I ask that of my sports talk show hosts. And then... God, if I want to hear about healthcare, I'm not going to put on sports radio. And that's a special, uh, my, the finger is pointed directly at Stephen A. Smith. And there's, there's a lot of guys that did it, by the way. Don't want to hear political crap on sports talk radio. Unless, of course, it is political crap that directly relates to sports talk. Like, for example, how uh, a few months ago, the Obama administration and the Democrat, well, actually... I can't just totally blame Obama for this. This actually was started by Orrin Hatch, a Republican from Utah. And then the Obama administration and the SEC ran with this. And they wanted to get an investigation into antitrust on college football because they don't have a playoff system. That's when it becomes relevant and germane to talk about it in context to sports and when sports talk show hosts should be talking about political stuff like that. But healthcare, no, I don't want to hear about it on sports talk shows. So please spare me of that in the future. All right, I'm sorry. It's just, I don't want to hear it. And then, so now I have to get into this because this is, uh, there's so many angles we can take to talk about this. I know some of you are probably tired of hearing about it, but I just... When I hear the uneducated things that are going on, that people are saying, the talking points on both sides, I, I, it just makes me want to projectile vomit. And then I saw the big signing ceremony this morning from Barack Obama signing this health care bill into law. And again, the urge to just blow my breakfast all over the console was right there. And I, I didn't do it, but man, ugh, I, I just felt like it because it was sickening. It was sickening because so far... In all of these months and months of healthcare discussions, the things that I keep coming back to are my most fundamental questions pertaining to healthcare that nobody has been able to answer to my satisfaction. Now, on Sunday, the Senate bill, which was passed in December, it passed the House 219 to 212. Nancy Pelosi was able to come up with the necessary votes. We'll talk about how she was able to do that in just a few minutes. There was a lot of backroom deals, a lot of well, a lot of that secrecy and a lot of that stuff and a lot of these uh, promises that aren't even worth the paper that they're going to be printed on. But again, we'll get to that in a few minutes. Let's just table that for the moment. The fixes were approved 220 to 211. So all of that passed through the House, albeit barely, but it did pass through. All right. On a wing and a prayer. But nobody has been able to answer these few questions. And question number one that I still have about this health care bill and the primary concern that many Americans have and the reason that it's uh, overwhelmingly falling short in the approval numbers by Americans, uh, more Americans disapprove of this bill than approve of it in poll after poll. Um, the number one question I still have, who is going to pay for it? 
how are we going to pay for it? Where is the money going to come from? These are very basic questions. If you can't even answer question number one, one, uh, one A, B, and C, then we can't even continue the discussion. We can't even move on to the other questions I have about this because if you can't answer that, then there's no funding for this bill. Where's the money going to come from? We're already, um, we are looking at a, a budget deficit the first uh, fiscal year in the Obama administration. We had a budget deficit of $1.3 trillion and now we're looking at a substantially bigger one. This health care package is going to cost, well, the conservative estimate from the Congressional Budget Office is that this is going to cost $940 billion over the next 10 years. But of course, we all know that that amount is well short. That's just, that is a very conservative estimate. And since when has any government program ever even come close to, if not falling under budget? I mean, when has that ever happened in the history of the United States? Uh, the answer to that would be never I can cite example after example where that's happened on any level, local, state, or federal. So it's going to cost well over a trillion, probably a trillion and a half, maybe even $2 trillion over the next 10 years. All right. So we're looking at spending a whole lot of money, but where is it going to come from? If we can't pay the bills that we have right now, what, are we going to borrow from the Great Bank of China again? You know, they're done lending to us. They're done. They, they are not going to lend us any more money. Nobody else is going to lend us money. We can't print money fast enough. It cannot come off the, the presses at the Federal Reserve fast enough. So where is the money going to come from? That's, that's the first question. And I know there's, there's talking point answers. I'll address the talking point answers in a minute. I have more questions. Like my next question is, how, how the hell is it constitutional to mandate that people buy health insurance. When in the history of the United States has the government ever mandated that you buy something? Now, if you want to counter, well, Mike, what about people? What about states that say you have to buy car insurance? Number one, that's not a federal mandate. I mean, it is since all 50 states require you to do it, including the District of Columbia. Okay, fine. But number two, if you choose to buy a car, then yes, you have to pay car insurance but you still have a choice. You don't have to drive. There are people like me that don't drive. So if you don't drive, then you're not paying car insurance. You're not, therefore, you're not being forced to buy insurance on anything. All right, so that's, that's uh, that issue. But where is the Constitution? Where in the United States Constitution does it say that you have the right or that the government has the ability to uh, issue a mandate that you buy anything? Where is there a precedent for this? Well, you know people are going to fight that. If you don't have the money to pay for health insurance, you're certainly not going to have the uh, money to pay for the fines on not buying health insurance. And since there's not a public option or single-payer system in this bill, this bill that even Democrats don't like, even some Democrats, uh, and on the liberal talking point radio, they were all holding their nose and saying, we like this bill. <laughs> you know, they, uh, they clearly didn't like the bill either, but here they did. They passed it anyway because it's a step in the right direction. That's like you go to a car, sh you, go, you go to like a, um, a car dealership and you buy a car and, and, and you say to the salesman, hey, is this car any good? The salesman says, well, you know, it's all right, I guess. I mean, it's not the car I'd buy. And then you say, well, what kind of features does it have? What kind of amenities? And the car salesman says to you, well, uh, I can't tell you until you buy it. 
I can't actually tell you until you buy it. That's what they said about this bill. Well, we can't show you all the good things it does until it passes. Really? All right. And one of the great things it does is force Americans to buy health insurance that, uh, uh, under penalty of law, under fines. You get fined if you don't. And I guess if you don't pay the fines, what are you going to do? Go to jail? Is the, is, are we going to do a system like the IRS does? Are we going to put liens on your property, liens on your house if you don't pay the, the fine? Some big problems there. And then I have more questions. My next question is, here in the state of Arizona, all right, question number three. Here in the state of Arizona, we have our own Medicaid system here. Uh, we have 310,000 people on the Medicaid system here in the state of Arizona. This, this bill cuts some of the funding to that. And so the state has to pick up the slack. But guess what? The state says, okay, well, we could, we could try and pick up the slack by changing some of the eligibility requirements for our own state program. And this law says, no, you can't do that. You can't take any of those people off. You can't change their benefits in any way, shape, or form. You can't change those people. Uh, you can't change them. It's against the law. So here in the state of Arizona, the state, which is already running over a billion dollars in deficit in the last year, the state somehow is going to have to come up with, actually, I think it's, it's more like uh, $2 billion. Anyway, the state that's running in a massive deficit already is somehow going to have to cough up about half the cash to pay for the 310,000 people that are on the state's Medicare system. Uh, how is that going to happen? How is that? How are we going to do that? Where is that money going to come from? Which again goes back to question number one. So clearly uh, no thought was put into this. And they try to tell you, they try to do lots of great uh, little uh, talking points to try and distract you from this. And I'll give you some of those. I'm going to give you some in just a minute. Let me just finish answering. These are just the basic questions. There's a lot of underlying questions I have too, but I'm, I'm trying to just enumerate these for you. All right. Uh, my next question is, if this is supposed to somehow uh, cut down on the insurance companies, if the insurance companies are so evil, and why did, did the insurance companies get a nice payoff from all this? Why did that happen? That's odd. Question number five. People like Bart Stupak from Michigan. You know, there are congressmen that, are, uh, that have integrity and then there are congressmen that do not. And the ones that do not, well, that's most of them. And Bart Stupak is one of these guys that was supposedly an anti-abortion Democrat. Now, I don't think those really exist. I didn't think that abortion was really a partisan issue, but I guess it is because clearly there were these guys, the Stupak 12 or the Stupak 19, whatever. These guys that were opposed to this bill because it had federal funding for abortions. And they said, we're not going to support a bill that has federal funding for abortion. We just won't do it. And so the president in the 11th hour came to these guys and said, look, all right, I'm going to, I'll issue an executive order whereby there will not be federal, which will prohibit federal funding to abortions. And Bart Stupak and his little crowd, they ate that crap up. They said, all right, all right, we're in. Now that would be all well and good, but here's the problem with that. You know, these, those executive orders, they aren't worth the paper they're printed on. You do know that, right? An executive order that contradicts an existing law is not worth the paper it's printed on because a judge can overturn that executive order at any time. 
anytime. And it doesn't have to be a Supreme Court judge that does it. It can be, it doesn't even have to be somebody from the ninth or 10th or fourth circuit. No, a low level, a lowly federal judge on his first day on the bench can say this directly contradicts the law of the land and therefore it is not a valid executive order. It's not a valid use of the executive order power that the president has. So it's therefore overridden. Of course, executive orders can be overridden by another president. Just like President Obama uh, said uh, he closed Guantanamo Bay with the stroke of a pen. You know, the next president could come along and change that. Uh, an executive order can be overturned by Congress. An executive order can be overturned by a judge, by Congress, by uh, another president. So it's not really worth the paper it's printed on. And guess what? In this bill, there are provisions for federal funding for abortion. And since it's in the bill, it means that the executive order would contradict the law. Therefore, the executive order doesn't have any merit to stand on. The executive order is done. See ya. No executive order. It's not worth it. I mean, so uh, Bart Stupak is either an idiot who fell for uh, who fell for Barack Obama's little uh, plan there, hook, line, and sinker. He might just be naive to the law, which I, if a congressman doesn't even know the basics of civics 101, if he doesn't know the Constitution, he doesn't know the basics of checks and balances for the president, the legislative, judicial, and executive branch, then that's a congressman that probably shouldn't be in there anyway. Or... Or he decided, well, I'm just going to go along with it. I guess I'll just go along with it. There was a fake opposition on the Democrat side to this bill as well. I know, and th this, this is quite obvious, that there were some Democrats that just said, I'm not voting for this bill. There's no way to pay for it. I'm opposed to it, period, the end. And then there are some that came to Nancy Pelosi and said, I hope you have enough votes. If you have enough votes, could you please let me vote no on this and put on a show? Please let me vote no, because if I vote yes, my political career is done. I, I am in a, my constituents uh, will throw me right out. If these are people that are sent to represent the American people, then why is it that if poll after poll, and again, I don't necessarily put a lot of stock into polls either, okay? You know how I feel about polls. Uh, asking 500 or 1,000 people what 300 million people think just doesn't seem like a very accurate representation to me. Nonetheless, in poll after poll, it seems that m many Americans are opposed to this. Even Democrats say we had to hold our nose to vote for this thing because there was a lot of things wrong with this bill. If that's the case, then how is it that you're there representing? You're certainly not representing me. You're not representing my values or my thoughts on this. Then again, I can't think of too many times where there has been a representative that was in the chair for me, whether they were a Republican or a Democrat. You know, you know, uh, I uh, very rarely do I speak in, in favor of either a Republican or a Democrat. I mean, hell, when the, de when the Republicans had control of Congress for 12 years, I wondered where the fiscal responsibility was. I didn't think that it was ever possible for anyone to outspend the Republicans. I didn't think it was possible. And then here we are, uh, the last three years, and now we're in year number four of Democrat-ruled House of Representatives. Democrat ruled Senate. And well, as it turns out, they, somebody could outspend the Republicans. Wow. And you wonder why there's such a high anti-incumbent sentiment in this country right now? People are fed up. 
fed up. There, a lot of people, fortunately, there are at least some people that are asking the same questions that I am about this bill. Number one, where is the money going to come from? How are we going to get the money? Who is going to pay for it? Simple. Number two, what about the constitutionality of it? What about mandating that somebody pays for insurance? Number three, what about states' rights? And on and on and on. You get it. Now, the common talking point answers, I want you to understand that there are a lot of people that have talking point answers to these questions. Uh, talking point answer number one, and, and I'm just going based on, uh, and it's weird. It's almost like everybody has a script in how they answer these questions. I think today alone, I've had this discussion with probably three people already. And I asked uh, my basic question, how are we going to pay for this? Who's going to be paying for it? Where is the money going to come from? And you know what their answer is? So weird. They go, well, what's the cost of not doing it, Mike? What's the cost? You know, a lot of people are dying every year from not having health insurance. Do you really want to see people die, Mike? Are you in favor of killing people? That's the response. Now, while that's all well and good, and it's, it's great to have that emotion and that passion on the other side, and, and that's, you know, that's not even, some of those aren't even uh, invalid questions. Guess what, though? That doesn't answer my question. You are answering a question with a question. And when you answer a question with a question, you got nothing. That means you've got nothing. When you deflect from the person answering the question, to your own question, it means you have nothing. So again, I ask, where's the money going to come from? I say, where's the money coming from? You come back at me with, well, a lot of people dying here, Mike. I mean, you know, there's a lot of people, that, tens of thousands of people every year, you know, they die. They don't have their health insurance and 14,000 people a minute or whatever the, you know, the common talking point is are losing their health insurance plans. And, you know, all right, that's fine. Again, great. But right now, we're dealing with this bill. It's great to put emotion into an argument, but guess what? Uh, right now, we're having a logical discussion. This is what adults do. Adults have logical discussions about these things. And uh, here in the educated world, I'd like to know, where's the money coming from? How are we going to pay for it? Who's going to pay for it? What, are we going to go after the rich? Are we going to take more money from the rich? Okay. Uh, even at, at the numbers that I have heard floated around about raising taxes. Okay. Um, that's only going to pay for about a third of this bill. Where's the rest of the money going to come from? Are we, what, what government program are we going to have to cut or where are we going to have to borrow from to get the money then? It's going to have to come from somewhere. Well, that's, that's really the problem. And then the other uh, common talking point about question number one, which doesn't even have to do with it, but the, they'll throw this out there is they'll say, well, you know, we could just raise taxes on people that make more than $200,000 a year. You know how dumb an argument that is, I have, to, I have to tell you this. Somebody that makes that argument, I, um, I almost don't even know what to say to them. Well, we could just raise taxes on people that make more than $200,000 a year. Okay, well, that's fine. You want to do that. Uh, okay, well, that's businesses. That's any business owner, basically. It's any small business owner, let alone a corporation. I know we, we all hate corporations. They're all evil. I understand. But uh, small businesses making $200,000 a year, medium-sized businesses, you're going to raise taxes on them. So they're going to have to, that money's going to have to come from somewhere. They're either going to have to raise the price of their product or their service. 
They're going to have to lay off somebody to to prevent their bottom line. They're going to have to do make some uh, financial adjustments to cover the increased cost because we're not just talking about raising taxes 1% on people making more than $200,000 a year. We're talking about a significant tax increase. A significant increase. If we're going to pay for what will be over a trillion dollars in cost here, that money's going to have to come from somewhere. And... Here in the state of Arizona, for example, where we have our own separate system, which we did because the federal system was so inadequate, we tried to do something on a state level. Well, now they're saying what you did on a state level, uh, we're not going to fund it fully. Uh, you already have your own program. Uh, you could try to qualify for some federal funds, but yours, your budget's going to get cut. For Your federal uh, budget to that program is going to get cut now. You're going to have to foot some of the bill. And we say, well, okay, uh, but guess what? We can't afford that. We have 310,000 people in the state of Arizona. We can't foot that bill. So again, uh, that's going to have to be passed along to the taxpayer. And it's not just people making more than 200000 a year. We raised, we actually created a grocery tax in Phoenix. Last I checked, people that made less than $200,000 a year bought groceries. You might say, well, gee, Mike, I mean, it's not that much money. But wait a minute. The president promised that he would not raise the taxes one dime on Americans making less than $200,000 a year. Well, uh, looks like um, looks like that's... Well, well, I guess he didn't. I guess that is true because what's happening is that's not from the federal level. That's just a result of the federal bill that the state and local taxes are being increased. That's pretty slick right there. That's pretty slick. I see what you did there. That was clever. Okay, so then when I ask question number two, and that is... How is this constitutional? How can you mandate when in U.S. history has the federal government ever mandated that somebody buy something? Well, then the common talking point response is, well, Mike, uh, the federal government does a lot of things wrong. We don't regulate the financial industry. We go into wars with Iraq and Afghanistan. We're constantly asserting our imperialism all over the place. Uh, we corporate, uh, corporate dominated media, blah, blah. They give you all sorts of weird, convoluted responses saying how government does other things wrong. But again, that doesn't address the question. What that says is that says, well, since the government does a lot of other things wrong, this isn't really that big a deal in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. I didn't get that memo either. So what you're saying is two wrongs or five wrongs or 173 wrongs make a right. Well, last I checked, no. Uh, another wrong, adding more wrongs onto the pile of things that's already wrong doesn't make it okay. It just makes it more wrong, actually. I mean, if you sit there and, and you say two plus two is seven and you say, no, that's not right. Well, then you say, well, it's eight. No, that's just, you've just given two wrong answers. Just throwing stuff out there doesn't mean that... Uh, <laughs> You're obfuscating the issue is what you're doing. You're deflecting. <laughs> so, and as I said, so my other questions about states and they go, well, uh, you know, uh, we're all paying for this in some way, shape or form. We're all paying for it when we go to the emergency room. Yeah, but that doesn't answer the question either about where the money's coming from, from the states. And the, here's the good news about all this. I've got some positive news. This bill is likely not to stick around long. Let's hope anyway. As of today, there are 10 states 
Attorney generals from 10 different states plan on filing lawsuits against the feds with regard to this bill. They plan to have legal challenges against this bill. Some of those states included are North Dakota, South Dakota, Idaho, Louisiana. Oh, look, look who's on this. Uh, Illinois, Barack Obama's home state. Well, that doesn't look good. Washington. Now, Washington, a very liberal state. Their attorney general is issuing a legal challenge to this bill. Wonder why. 37 states either currently have legislation or are in the process of writing legislation to block parts of or the entirety of this bill. That's pretty significant. That's 74% of the union. For those of you that want to just do the quick math, uh, we're not counting, uh, you know, the, we're not counting like Puerto Rico. We're not, yeah, we're not counting the territories. 37 states. State of Arizona has even taken it to another level. State of Arizona on the ballot in November, the state of Arizona is going to do a clean health care uh, act, which basically says if, if the voters approve the referendum that's on the ballot, the uh, agenda that's on the ballot here in November, it will ignore this health care plan from the state of Arizona. It will block it entirely. Obamacare will be flat out rejected by the voters of the state of Arizona, and we will not adhere to the federal law that's here. And we will do it under the guise of the 10th Amendment of the Constitution. Now, it's weird. Uh, for those of you that haven't taken a Civics 101, the 10th Amendment to the Constitution, say, it gives states their rights. Rights otherwise not enumerated by the Constitution and not specified in other documents are hereby granted to, given to the states. So the power is given to the states by the Constitution, by the 10th Amendment. It's a weird thing, the 10th Amendment. So that is, uh, that's what's going to happen here. And then um, in November, when um, some 45 seats, estimated about 45 of these democratically controlled seats are going to be lost. And the reason they say that is because a lot of these are in uh, heavy Republican districts. And a lot of these guys that are in those districts voted for this bill. And a lot of them are probably going to lose their jobs. Uh, some, of, some of these Democrats are retiring. Um, some of these are in areas where um, polls have been running. And again, how much stock you put into polls, but we're talking some areas, our polls are trending 70 or 80% in favor of the Republican. Some of these are just places where the incumbent is going to get voted out because the voters, they don't even care who's running against the guy. They just want to see the incumbent out. That's another popular sentiment that's running out there. People just want to throw the incumbents out. And the way things are going in the country right now with the high unemployment, with the deficit spending that's out of control, with this health care bill, with other things that are happening, people are upset. They're upset about the war in Iraq and Afghanistan. They're upset about the attitude of Congress. They're upset because they don't feel they're getting represented properly. And this, again, people on both sides, Republicans and Democrats are feeling this way. There is an overwhelming feeling of abandonment in their representation by their congressmen, by their senators, by their representatives. I can't say as I blame them. 
that's the the talk on this bill, and uh, we're going to keep you up to date on this. We're going to let you know. There's already been uh, a couple of uh, bills that are out there to repeal this. So when the Republicans take control in November, now they're not going to be able to do it as long as Obama's in the White House. That's just not going to happen. And as long as the Senate is still controlled by the Democrats, there is no way that any repealing of this bill is ever going to happen. The only way that that's going to occur is if you get a Republican-controlled House, Senate, and White House, which uh, the way things are trending and the anti-incumbent sentiment that's out there probably could happen in 2012. Probably. Barack Obama himself even said he doesn't care. He doesn't care. Uh, as He just feels he's doing the right thing. Even people in his own party feel that this was not a good bill. They feel that there should have been a public option or a single payer system or something else. They feel that this bill was really a, a very watered down bill compared to what they should have had, compared to what they were told they were going to get. See, Democrats voted for it because they wanted to go along with the president. They wanted to show some solidarity. And Nancy Pelosi insisted, Harry Reid insisted that this was the president's legacy that was on the line here. And these are people that are falling on the sword for the president. And that's very loyal of them. But it could very well cost them their jobs. It very well likely will cost them their jobs. It happened in 1993. It happened in 1993. A lot of these people that went along with the Hillary health care plan, they all lost their jobs. That was when there was a sweeping reform by the Republicans in 1994. And then they, and aside from the one year where they did balance the budget, where the Republicans balanced the budget, aside from that one year, uh, it was a spending spree. Hopefully, I put that in quotes, italicized and underlined. Hopefully, the Republicans have learned their, their lesson. I have a feeling they haven't. I have a feeling that they'll get in there and they'll screw up just as badly. But let's hope. Let's hope somebody comes along. This would be the part where I go on my mandatory third-party rant, but you all know that that's just unrealistic thinking still in this country, unfortunately. It's unrealistic thinking not because of people like me, but because there are just uh, people are still beholden to the D and the R. They're still beholden to the zero and the one. That's the common attitude we have in this country is zero and one. That's the attitude. It's an attitude that we really need to get away from. I wish we could get away from it. I would give anything to move away from the binary zero and one polarized mentality that we have. But unfortunately, you and I both know that that's not going to happen. Not now, anyway. It's going to take something a lot worse than this. For something like that to happen. All right, it's Michael Groff in exile. We need to take a break. We'll come back. I have to talk a little bit about uh, some other things happening. There, but believe it or not, there actually is other news going on right now. I know it's it's hard to believe. And I'm on fire. Break time. We'll come back. We'll have more stuff. We'll get to and... Uh, again, I... Maybe we ought to just do the pop chart anyway. I know it's only Tuesday, but we probably should look at it anyway just because we haven't done it in like three, four weeks. I don't even know what's on the pop chart anymore. So we'll we'll probably just do that bit for the hell of it. And a lot more. 
Yes, Michael Graff in exile. Mike at KMGX.com. That's my email address. That's also the PayPal address for this show. Should you feel the need to be generous. See, nobody's holding a gun to your head and forcing you to contribute to my PayPal address. Maybe I should get into Congress and make that mandatory. That seems to be the best way to do it. You just get into Congress, you force people to pay for something they may or may not want, mandate people listen to this podcast. That'd be the way to go. Once again, that is Mike at KMGX.com, though. I don't want that point to get lost in the shuffle. AOL Instant Messenger, Michael Groff Show is the screen name. MichaelGroff.com for more information about this show. And uh, we'll be back. with segment number two, Michael Graff in exile on a Tuesday, March 23rd, 2010. Why am, why am I playing this? Why is this being used as a bumper? I was out on Saturday. I actually, a uh, bunch of us went out and uh, I actually rode the billion dollar mistake of the light rail here in Phoenix. I listen, you know, I, I didn't get shot, so that was that was a good start. Well, you know, being downtown Phoenix uh, in the middle of the night, that's that's a little bit dangerous. But I, I'm here to report that I suffered uh, no significant wounds, so we only returned a little bit of gunfire. Anyway, Went out to Tempe. You know, I actually was in a club this weekend. I was in a couple of clubs this weekend. I had very good company. I was safe. I didn't hurt myself too bad. My, my legs are still sore. It's Tuesday, for God's sake. It was Saturday. I haven't been in a club in like six years. I maintain that. I don't. I generally don't dance. I actually did, though. I was I was persuaded and not it was mostly not even by alcohol mostly it was it was fine it was just that now I, I'm paying for it and so this is one of those songs that like I heard in every club was the song is about a year old now but they blast this song To, I maintain this though. Maybe this is just because I'm in this business. I'm in the the broadcast business, the music business too. You know, I know a lot about music, but and transitions. But uh, man, some of these DJs at these clubs—they're really bad. They they don't know how to transition from song to song. They're not—they're uh, not very good at that.
Yeah, they they go from this and then they they play some uh, some crap, some slow crap. I don't know. I'm not. I, I'm so really out of the club scene, and I, I always look like a lumbering post when I'm dancing. It's. Uh, yeah, I know people are probably saying right now, boy, I'd I'd pay any amount of money to see that. Well, no, no, you you probably you probably wouldn't. It's pretty bad. I didn't bring my camera. I really should have brought my camera. I'm sure somebody has video of me dancing. I hope not, but I'm sure somebody does. It was just, um, it was fine though. It was fine. I just, I probably should not have eaten uh, fish also. Um, yeah, we were at like these different places and eating food and, and drinking. I, I really, I, I was, um, I was responsible. I didn't drink too much. I, uh, I didn't, uh, I did eat some fish and chips though. The fish was what killed me because it's not really good fish. You know, they use like catfish and it's catfish that, you know, it's loaded down with mercury. Yeah, I started singing that song, that fish full of mercury. I started singing mercy, mercy me while I was eating those, but it was fine. You know, I mean, I, I, yeah, here we, <laughs> this is what I was, I was eating catfish and humming this. You don't want to come to Arizona to eat fish. That's fish full of mercury. So no, it was a good time. It was just these songs, and then that Kesha song. That was another one. That was just, it was just blaring, and uh, my ears are are just now recovering. It was my legs are really what still hurts. Like, I can walk, I could walk across the city. I wouldn't want to, but I can. But dancing for more than about 30 seconds and my legs hurt. It's fun, it's fine, as long as everybody else is so drunk they don't know what I look like. The only way this song is tolerable is if, number one, you're kind of halfway in the bag. Number two, you're dancing with a hot chick. Or you're just deaf from all the other songs, so all you can sort of hear is a beat. Maybe we ought to look at the pop chart now. Now, I'll save the pop chart for segment number three. I have to talk about this. Ben Roethlisberger is uh, in the news again. Now, Ben, big Ben. Oh, Benny's in trouble right now. Uh, as you may know, um, for the second time in the last eight months, he is facing a possible sexual assault charge. Well, this this is different. In Georgia, I believe it's called sexual battery, what he's facing. And the... The situation doesn't look very good. Uh, this 20-year-old college student is filing a... Uh, well, the, no charges have officially been filed. He has not been officially um, brought in. He's they're, they're investigating right now. But the more interesting part of this story is the fact that uh, the NFL is really taking a serious look at this. Commissioner Roger Goodell is looking into Big Ben... And uh, Roger Goodell made an interesting statement yesterday. He said, you know, uh, these... There's certainly, uh, he, I've, he said, I've, I've spoken with the Steelers. I've spoken with the Rooney family. And there will be a time where I will meet with Ben. And we're going to have a conversation about this. These continued behavioral issues. Now, he used the word continued. Now, um, 
Ben Roethlisberger, if nothing else, is stupid. And I don't say that. I'm not just calling him a name to call him a name. At the very least, he is stupid. This is a guy that uh, he has this huge, this lucrative quarterback contract. All of this money. He's the face of the Pittsburgh Steelers. He's the quarterback for the Pittsburgh Steelers. Not much more prestigious a job can you possibly have in sports than that. Here he is, the quarterback of the Pittsburgh Steelers. And what does he do in the offseason? He goes around riding on his motorcycle without a helmet, without any kind of protection whatsoever, and then gets in an accident. You know, and again, I know people have outside lives, but... If you're a quarterback in the NFL, why in the world would you ever ride around on a motorcycle? Just dumb. It's not, it's, it's, there's nothing smart about that at all. Then he gets in a situation with some woman in California, I guess. There was a possible civil suit and then that all got dropped. And that pretty much said all it needed to say. Uh, that was a woman that was a, a gold digger. She saw a million dollar athlete. She met the guy, you know, there was, uh, there might've been something, but there probably wasn't because she dropped all the charges. It was the Kobe Bryant scenario all over again, except there wasn't even sex, supposedly. This wasn't even a case where there was consensual sex. It was just, uh, it was, it was a totally trumped up situation. It looks like. And maybe that's what's going on with this girl. But now there's starting to be a pattern that's emerging. And we've talked about this before. You know, once is a fluke. Twice, you're starting to set a trend. And Ben Roethlisberger has already shown that he doesn't have very good judgment. So if he's not got good judgment, can the commissioner suspend you for not having good judgment? Well, as it turns out, yes. You can be suspended for bad judgment. Even if there's, a, there's an existing policy in the NFL right now. Roger Goodell passed this in 2008. The policy in the NFL is you don't have to be convicted of a crime. There doesn't have to be a conviction. There doesn't even have to be an arrest for a crime per se. If you engage in, in character that is detrimental to the image of the league, you can be penalized. You can be suspended. Again, it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with whether or not you're arrested. Obviously, if you are, if there's a situation like Pac-Man Jones who had this long rap sheet and he was just a guy that was, it was clearly obvious. But we're not talking about even a Pac-Man Jones situation. We're talking about somebody that's engaging in very poor behavior. And sometimes uh, in the NFL, you know, you have to put the clamp down on, on situations like this. 28 years old, hitting on a 20-year-old guy, Fine. Fine, hit on a 20-year-old girl, hang out. But understand, understand 20-year-olds 20 20-year-olds 20 are, are, are really uh, Lucifer incarnate. They really are. They don't know what they want. They don't know who they are. And if you get yourself mixed up in, in a situation like that, believe me, I know this from personal experience, you will get screwed. I didn't get, I didn't get hosed like Ben Roethlisberger's getting hosed. There was nothing... Uh, you know, there was no, there's no criminal situation with me. But what's going to happen is you don't know what a 20-year-old is thinking. You don't know. And, and look, there could be other people that could be influencing her. There could be a situation where you're talking about a gold digger. I'm saying I don't know what Ben Roethlisberger is up to. I don't know if it's a situation where this woman is after his money. Or I don't know if there's a situation where he really did commit sexual battery which in Georgia is defined as, uh, well, there's groping, uh, there is uh, touching, usually outside of the clothes of the genitals or um, breasts, inappropriate conduct, contact. So, but regardless, 
Ben could be looking at a suspension. And all of a sudden, Steeler fans who were standing strong, standing tall behind this guy, they're starting to say, well, you know, he kind of is an ass. And there's a lot of other stories coming out about this guy. And I'm saying, if, if you're Ben Roethlisberger, why not just clean up your act? Why not just mellow out? Why do you have to go out and, and chase after chicks all night? I realize you're in the NFL. I realize you're in the prime of your life. I realize you're a millionaire. I understand that. But you know, sometimes you have to use that, that million bucks that you've got, those millions of dollars, and, uh, and, and be wise. You have to be very wise with that money. You want to keep that money, don't you? You want to really hold on to those bucks. See, this could be another situation of a guy that's got a million-dollar arm and a 10-cent brain. And if that's the situation, well, you're not going to have that million dollars for very long then. You're not going to have all that money for very long. You're going to be out of it very, very soon, unfortunately, for you. I really don't care. And then Tiger Woods. Tiger Woods was, um, now there's, there's more Tiger news. He was on the Golf Channel. He was given an interview over the weekend, a couple of interviews. He was on ESPN and he was on the Golf Channel. And they were asking him more about his infidelity. You know, I'm, I'm really tired of hearing about it now. I really am. I'm, I'm tired of it. I, I'm tired of people that feel that they're entitled to get an explanation from Tiger Woods about his infidelity, about his various trysts. If you want to ask a guy a legitimate question about the car accident that happened outside his house, because there was damage done, the police were called out. That's a public situation. The public can find out that information. Police reports are a matter of public record. Okay, so that's all public. But anything that goes on between him and his wife beyond that, and any situation that he has with another woman or other women, well, who cares? I don't know why people feel that he, and he, I know he made this apology. He said, well, I, I do an apology to my kids. And he does, I guess. Sure. But he doesn't owe an apology to kids everywhere who look up to him and people that look up to him. No, you don't owe an apology to them. You don't. People that look up to a professional athlete, this is a lesson in life you're going to learn very quickly. If you look up to Tiger Woods because you perceive him to have good morals because you've never heard anything bad about him up to this point and that because he's such a great golfer, you perceive him to have good morals, then that's your problem. You are, you are putting false attributes, artificial attributes into somebody where they're not deserved, they're not earned. I mean, I, I say the same thing about people that look up to me, if somebody does. I'm a good guy, I think. But, you know, maybe I'm not, I'm not the greatest guy in the world. I mean, you know, we all make mistakes. That's the thing. Tiger Woods, he didn't just make mistakes. Those aren't mistakes. Those aren't mistakes at all. He went out and intentionally did all that. That was all intended. And then all the, the, the stuff, his, uh, his chat messages, all of his uh, various texts that he gave to, that, uh, to one of the women that he was with, that came out. That came out. Oh, boy. You should have read some of He's into some weird stuff, man. Well, I'd like to he, he He's talking to these women about peeing on them, and he wants to see, <clears throat> he wants to... Um, he wants to get with like a couple of women at a time, which is, I guess, normal fantasy stuff. But then like he wants to slap this girl in the face and then and then she begs him for more sex and begs her to, 
begs him to put it in her and stuff. You know, I mean, <clears throat> a lot of his fantasies that he writes in these texts, they center around him and they center around stroking his ego more than any other part of his body. That's really what they talk about. They talk about really boosting his own ego. Oh, you're going to want it for me. And you're going to tell me how good it is. And uh, Okay. Yeah, I hate to tell you this, but uh, Tiger, what, what a douche. He really is. Tiger is really just, he is an unmitigated disaster, this guy. <laughs> Man, I mean, he's done in terms of reputation. I mean, he's, he is, he's done. But at the same time, you know what's weird? He is still just a guy. And people that say, oh, and he's talking about, oh, I'm still doing things for my sex addiction. He doesn't have sex addiction. He has a penis. He's a penis and he wants to be with women. The problem is he should never have gotten married and he should have never had children. But now he does and he should remain committed to them. But he can't. But it's not an addiction. It's not an addiction like a drug addiction. He just, he wants sex. And he, he, he doesn't know the proper socialization. He doesn't have proper socialization skills. He has terrible psychological issues as a result. And the reason that he has all that is because of his upbringing, because of his mother and father who, you know, he, he apologized for embarrassing, I guess, but really he should be upset at his mother and father for not giving him proper upbringing. But okay, put all that aside. He should know how to act like an adult for God's sake. What he's doing, he's, he doesn't even go out and, and hit it and quit it with these women. He doesn't go out to have one night stands. He's going out and trying to build relationships with each one of these people. He has an ego issue. You'd think a guy with a billion dollars wouldn't constantly need to have his ego serviced, but he does. It's weird. I, 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 he's a fascinating psychological study to say the least, but really as a human being, kind of deplorable. But you know, I think for anybody to feel that they're entitled to an explanation about what's gone on, any discussion outside of golf, if you feel that you're entitled to that, you're just as bad as he is. You're part of the yellow journalistic crowd. You're part of the the just the the gossipy, eat up the Hollywood crap, TMZ crowd that's out there that's so pervasive. That crowd really bothers me. Oh, I gotta know the I gotta know the dirty details. I gotta know what he was up to. I got to know, man. I got to know. I got to know what he was doing with these chicks in bed. I want to know the size of his penis. I want to know. Really? You want to know all that? Why? Who cares? Well, my life is completely boring and inadequate, so that's why I want to know all that stuff. Oh, well, then I get it. That's really why. Because all these other people, they live such a boring, empty, shallow existence they need to know what's going on with Tiger Woods all the time. You know, and while my, my existence uh, might be fairly boring, even I don't leave, uh, lead a boring enough existence to where I would want to just hang out and get to know everything, every little intimate detail about Tiger Woods every five seconds. I mean, that, that just, that doesn't make any sense to me at all. I'm sorry. But Tiger uh, made the rounds this weekend. You know, there's going to be more questions that are going to come out. And it's going to be a circus at the Masters. And I'm sure the Masters doesn't necessarily appreciate the fact that he didn't participate in any other tournaments leading up to the event. I'm sure they don't necessarily appreciate the fact that he's not really been answering a lot of questions. Because they'd probably like to get as much of the circus environment out of the way. But it's not going to happen.
it's not. He's he's going to go to the Masters and they're going to try and shield him from some of this. I'm sure. They kind of have to. But they can't shield him from everything. They ask him, uh, what does he expect uh, the reaction for the galleries to be? Well, he said he hopes he gets a few claps. There are people that say, well, if he makes a couple of birdies, you know, everybody will just forget what happened. You know, there, there are people that are that way. But, you know, he had a Q rating. A lot of the, oh, celebrities, they all get measured by their, their Q ratings, their popularity ratings. Their, well, <clears throat> you know, Tiger Woods just a couple of years ago had a favorability rating, a likability rating of 85%. Now it's 35%. So he went from more than four out of five people, almost five out of six people, five out of every six people, you know, like him. They think he's cool. Now it's like one out of three. That's not so good. Me, um, <clears throat> I just, I don't, I, I don't put people up on these pedestals. I don't believe in all the hype. I don't believe in all the BS that surrounds these people. Maybe this sounds cynical, but I kind of assume that people are just, they're humans, okay? They're going to make mistakes. Some people are actually just going to be douchebags. They are. Some people are just assholes, and this is, a, this is a problem that people don't understand. Just because a guy is good at a sport, and just because you think he's clean, just because he may be articulate, he may look good, he may be able to play the sport well. He may give all the nice cliche answers whenever he's interviewed by the media. That doesn't necessarily make them a good guy. It doesn't. Again, I'm an actions guy. I believe in what you do defines who you are, not what you say. Yes, what you say is nice, and you should say the right things, but then you should act upon them. Words, words are great, and I think words are important, but I've learned my lesson. And my lesson is, words don't mean anything if there's not actions to back them up. And that's the problem here. That's the problem with Tiger Woods. You know, there need to be actions to back up what he's saying. And I don't think there are. That's my problem. Then again, I don't really care. Because Tiger Woods doesn't owe me anything. Do I really think much less of him? I never really thought much of him in the first place. I mean, now I know who he is and kind of what he's up to. I think it's sad for his wife and his kids especially. But who are we to demand an apology or demand an explanation from him? But there are people that do. It's it's weird. All right. Mike at KMGX.com, the email address. That's also our PayPal address for your contributions to the program. AOL Instant Messenger, Michael Graff Show, the screen name. This is Michael Graff in Exile. And we'll be back. tell you
with segment number three, Michael Graff in Exile. It's Tuesday, I think. I want to play Xbox on your floor. Say hi to All right. Mike at KMGX.com, the email address, and our PayPal address also. MichaelGraff.com for more information relevant and germane to this program. All right. Also, uh, Michael Graff Show, AOL Instant Messenger, for that instant gratification that you so want and desire. Feedback from me, of course. I was just looking at a list, you know, speaking of economy and all that stuff we've been talking about forever. And you know, I'm a sucker for lists. So I have here the list of the most underwater cities, the list of the most financially troubled cities in terms of uh, mortgages and things like that. Okay, what states do you think are represented on this list? What cities? All right, well, if uh, your first guess was to say... Well, all right, here it is. This is these are the top 10 cities. Let's see here. Number 10 on the list. Grand Rapids, Michigan. Surprise, surprise, surprise. Really? Let's see. It says uh, real estate values in Grand Rapids, Michigan increased 15% from 2002 to 2005. But here's the royal but. Um, they fell about 13% through the third quarter of last year. As the fourth quarter of 2009, roughly 29% of single family home mortgages were underwater, according to uh, Zillow. Some research. Uh, the weakness in the housing market is linked to the area's deteriorating economy. Yeah, you think? Number nine on the list is Cleveland. <laughs> wow, really? Um, you know, what's funny is we, we did this a uh, um, couple of weeks ago on the show. I read you the list of the most miserable cities in the country, and they they rated it on based on several different criteria, including the performance of sports teams, uh, the the economy of the area, and just a million other things. And it was weird, like almost, it, we did the top 20, and, and most of the cities in the top 20 were in Ohio, Michigan, and I think there was a couple in Florida. So there you go, way to go, Ohio. There's nothing wrong with Ohio. Nice job. Cleveland really representing. Let's see. Home prices in Cleveland increased 13% from 2002 to 2006, but then fell nearly 15% through the third quarter of 2009. Sounds very similar. Quote, there was a little bit of... There was a little bit of overinvestment in housing and the economy started weakening, says Kalia Chen of Moody's Economy... Moody's Economy.com. Quote, Cleveland entered recession before the rest of the U.S. And I think 
Weak economic conditions have pulled down home prices. Exposure to subprime lending has also played a role in the real estate market's decline. Roughly 32% of single-family home mortgages were underwater as of the fourth quarter of last year. Wow. I mean, that's just... That's just, that's sad. All right, well, there you go. That's uh, that's what's going on. Uh, number 10, number nine. I love, see, again, I'm always a sucker for countdowns and lists like this. Anytime you present me with something like this, I'm, I'm always going to read it on the air. All right, number eight on the list. Now, this, this is a little bit different. Memphis. Home prices in Memphis didn't surge as aggressively as other markets during the boom, but pockets of subprime mortgages coupled with a modest slump in prices over the past three years have created notable concentrations of negative equity. Real estate values increased by about 12% from 2002 to 2006, but prices then fell nearly 18% through the third quarter of 2009 and so on and so on. Number seven on the list, Minneapolis-St. Paul. Wow. Although this area is far removed from the city's most closely associated with the housing bubble, home prices in Minneapolis-St. Paul inflated significantly in the early and mid parts of the decade. And then, um, yeah, home values, get this, in Minneapolis, and this I, I knew this was happening. Like when I went up there in 2002 and visited, I was like, wow, you, you people pay $200,000 for a house in Minneapolis? I mean, listen, there's not, I, I like, I love Minnesota, okay? It's one of the places where when I get to be an old, old fart, I'll probably retire. You know, a lot of people would come to Arizona. See, I'd be the opposite. I'd go to Minnesota, probably not for the winter. I don't know, maybe I would. It's one of those places, I love it there, but I wouldn't spend $300,000 on a house in Minnesota. I'm sorry. I don't care how nice it is. It's Minnesota. Home prices in Minneapolis-St. Paul inflated significantly, up to up 34% from 2002 to 2006. Brad Fisher, the president of Minneapolis Area Association of Realtors, said uh, that subprime lending played a key role. Quote, outside of the coast, the Minneapolis-St. Paul area was one of the highest subprime loan areas. So we've paid a price because of that. <clears throat> The subsequent 29% decline through the third quarter of 2009 pulled nearly 39% of single-family home mortgages underwater. Wow. Number six on the list, Bend, Oregon. Yes, good old Bend over. Bend, Oregon. Now, that doesn't even... Like 12 people live there. What did every single house in Bend, Oregon go bad? Let's see. From 2002 to early 2007, home prices in Bend, Oregon jumped by 99%. So they went from $100 to $198 for a house. As second home buyers and retirees were drawn to this community, uh, but after the housing bubble, uh, and the economy eroded. Home prices then slumped 32%. We are seeing homes that people bought for $2.5 million now selling for under a million. $2.5 million homes in Bend, Oregon? 
How many people could even, I, I know where it is. I actually just happen to know where it is, but could anybody locate Bend, Oregon on a map? Let's see. Number five is Greeley, Colorado. 45% of single family mortgages are underwater in Greeley. Wow. Number four, Orlando. Let's see. According to this, 48% drop in, uh, in um, housing prices. 58% of single family mortgages are bad. Number three, ah, represent Phoenix, Arizona. Here we go. As exotic mortgage loans and investor and uh, investor demand swept through the market, home prices in Phoenix jumped more than 101% from 2002 to 2006. Jay Butler, an associate professor of real estate at Arizona State University, says many people that purchased property in Phoenix during the boom felt pressure to get in on the action. Quote, you had real estate seminars all over the place. You had, you had to flip this. You had way too many flip this type shows. So yeah, they had like, you know, here in Phoenix, it was just out of hand. What it would happen is people would come along and they'd get these houses for like $100,000. Then they'd turn around and flip them for about $300,000. And some people made a ton of money in the real estate market here in Phoenix. I mean, people made money hand over fist for a while. When I knew it was getting out of hand was this neighborhood I live in. And there was a house on the corner. Now, keep in mind, I live in an, in an okay neighborhood. Okay, it's okay. You know, it's not, I don't live in a, in a, in a slum land. All right, I don't live in South Phoenix. I don't live in a house where, where every place, you know, where it's just marked up by bullet holes. But at the same time, I don't live in North Scottsdale. Okay, I don't live way up there. It's just a nice middle-class neighborhood. But the problem is, you had a house that was on the corner here selling for $500,000. And I knew we had hit ridiculous when there was a house here on my street selling for $500,000. I knew right away. Okay, I said, this is enough. Officially, the market cannot sustain this type of price anymore. Once I saw average houses, like three-bedroom houses that are 2,000 square feet or so, selling for $500,000, I said, that's it. We're done. Game over. It's time to get out of the real estate market. Once the music stopped, the housing market in Phoenix uh, was clobbered with home prices dropping more than 52% from their peaks through the third quarter of 2009. And as of the fourth quarter of last year, nearly 62% of single family home mortgages are now underwater. Number two. Merced, California, which is one of those places would, again, would be one of the last places on earth I would live, right next to Tikrit and Dubai. Area home prices jumped nearly 129% from 2002 to 2006, but after the euphoria ended, home prices crashed more than 72% through the third quarter of 2009, and 64% of single-family home mortgages are now underwater. But all of that is well and good, and that's all wonderful. But then, of course, we're now, we're now up to the number one most disastrous city. There's my, there's my drum roll, but it, it, it didn't come in right. We have to do that. There we go. Thank you. 
According to U.S. News, the number one most upside down city, and this is not really a surprise if you think about it. This was one of the fastest, actually for a while, was the fastest growing city. Phoenix was as well, but this was the fastest growing city in the country for a while. So it stands to reason that this was the city that suffered the most. Number one, Las Vegas. Las Vegas was ground zero for the market's historic boom and bust. Of course, they, you know, the loose lending standards, everything that we've always talked about really contributed to all this. Check this out. Home prices surged more than 104% from 2002 to 2006. That was another city I, I noticed like prices would just skyrocket. Every time I visited there, a house w- would sell for like 125, then 160, then 180. Next thing you know, the, a house that was 125000 was well over a quarter of a million dollars in value. I said, there's no way this can keep up. There's no way. Home prices in Las Vegas fell more than 56% from 2006 through the, two, uh, through, uh, the third quarter of 2009. And um, let's see here. According to this, 81%, 80, think about this, 81% of single family home mortgages in Las Vegas are now underwater. They're now upside down. They're, they're all, they're bad. That's four out of five. Wow. I don't even know what to say to that. That is a ridiculous, uh, that's just unbelievable. But you see, you knew how to happen. This is the problem when you have a, a big time housing bubble like this. It's just like anything. When you see a, a house in a middle-class neighborhood that's selling for $500,000, a 2,000-square-foot house in a middle-class neighborhood selling for $500,000, it's time. You, what you should do is sell your own house as quick as you can, flip your house, get the money you can, and then when the market crashes, you could buy like seven houses with the money you sold your house for. That's how you play the real estate game. That's how some people really did play this. I know a guy that basically did that. You know, you, you buy, you buy up all this land and then like the bubble just gets way too big. You flip something at the last minute and then boom, everything crashes. And now you can basically buy a city block. There are houses in this neighborhood that were selling for 500,000 that now sell for a hundred thousand. I mean, you consider how far they went up. It's, it's, it always is going to happen. This is a general rule of economics. It's one of the first things you learn about in, in basic economics. No matter how inflated a market gets, no matter how out of control a market gets, it will always eventually correct itself. I, if the market gets too low, the price will eventually come up. If the, if the market gets too high, it gets too overinflated, too high in value, it will always come down. The Dow Jones Industrial Average is the perfect example of this. People invest in stocks and they just keep buying it and buying it and buying it. You know, when you saw Google going up over $600 a share, you just, you had to know that this was not going to continue. When you saw oil prices at $147 a barrel, I said on this show, I kept screaming on this show over and over that there's just no market sustainability here. Who can afford it? Everything priced itself out of the market. So everything had to naturally correct itself because then nobody was buying product. Nobody was able to buy or afford houses anymore. Everybody that wanted to flip them, flipped them. 
Nobody could afford the the new ones. And of course, the lending standards got to be so ridiculous that, I mean, banks were giving people that made $50,000 a year, they were giving them $300,000 loans. They were giving these adjustable rate mortgages. People that bought adjustable rate mortgages, I mean, most of them didn't even know what they were getting. You had a combination of really stupid people combined with really greedy people combined with uh, a market that was out of hand. And the combination was lethal. Las Vegas, Merced, Phoenix, your top three cities for, uh, for just bad, bad mortgages. No surprise. And I'm sure other cities in the Southwest were, a lot of cities in the Southwest were up there. I wouldn't be surprised if, if places like Tucson, godforsaken places like Pahrump, Nevada, home of Art Bell, though. Now, I'm sure that um, I'm sure that those places did not fare too well. Well, all right. Something that we haven't done on the podcast for a while because, well, I haven't done a podcast on a Friday in a while. So what I'm going to do now is we're going to just break format. I'm going to I'm going to rebel. That's it. I'm doing it, man. You're doing it. You do. So let's hit it. Let's. Uh, it's time to take a look at uh, the favorite segment here. Yeah. Where we take a look at. The top 10 songs in the world of pop music. The top 40 chart, the what's called in this business, CHR. According to MediaBase 24-7, these are the 10 most played songs on top 40 radio stations across the country. And uh, here we go. People seem to like this segment. It makes me sick. I just want to projectile vomit, but... At number 10, speaking of projectile vomiting, I, I just heard this song a minute ago. This is Rihanna with Rude Boy. Oh, yeah. Is there any redeeming aspect to this? Sounds like every other Rihanna song, though. Tonight I'ma let you be the captain. Tonight I'ma let you do your thing, yeah. Tonight I'ma let you be a rider. Giddy up, giddy up, giddy up, babe. Tonight I'ma let it be fire. Tonight I'ma let you take me higher. Tonight, baby, we could get it on, yeah. <laughs> is it safe to say that they're officially out of ideas for songs? Is, is it over? Is music as we know it, has the music died? Is Don McLean right? Is this the day the music died? Actually, I think we've officially determined that 1993, sometime in 1993 was the day the music died. Might have been about the time Informer by Snow came out.
I think I've heard enough. I think I heard enough about two minutes ago. All right, number nine. It's still on the chart. This song has been on the chart for... Well, I don't know how long it's been in the top 10, but it's been on the chart for about almost a year, believe it or not. It's, uh, it's Lady Gaga and Bad Romance. <laughs> I heard this in a club the other day, too. At least I think it was this song. Could have been any of Lady Gaga's songs, but it was so loud. Who even knows? All right. Meanwhile, Timberland featuring Justin Timberlake is at number eight with Carry Out. This sounds like the Rihanna song, except with male vocals. Really, what's the difference between those two songs? I guess I, because I'm not a chick, I don't get the whole Justin Timberlake phenomena. I don't get why his songs are redeeming in any way, but... Is his star fallen yet? I, we can only help. Number seven, Orianthe with According to You. This song was almost number one, actually. Okay, but that's not going to work. <laughs> All right, let's try this again. Number seven. Here we go. This is the pop version. The other version's kind of redeemable. This song, this version is not. Find some more. Number six, it's Young Money featuring Lloyd with Bedrock. She got that good, good. She Michael Jackson bad. I'm attracted to her for her attractive And now we murder. Okay, uh, number five. <laughs> Still 
Uh, I just I just hit the microphone on my crotch. All right. <laughs> okay. All right. Let's this 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 is a hazard. This is hazard pay here. Uh, I talked about this earlier. This this is another one of those club songs where they play like a, a half an hour version of it. But it's uh, Kesha with a dollar sign. TikTok. A lot more tolerable if you dance with a hot chick, though. But even that, you still want to punch somebody. Unless you're really drunk. Jason Derulo has the privilege of being at number four with In My Head. This is the guy that... There it is. The guy that says his name in every one of his songs. God help this culture. All right, now number three is a song I'm kind of like okay with. I know, I know. You're, you're going to be like, hey. Uh, number, number three, I'm like all right with it. I'm cool with it. It's Lady Antebellum, Need You Now. He works his way into every song, apparently. I just need you now. I like it. What can I tell you? Well, it, first of all, it didn't make me sick when I first heard it. So then it just started to grow on me. So I used to be okay with Lady Gaga, too, but... But you know how that goes. Yeah, then I found out she was a dude. Appropriately enough, at number two, it's the Black Eyed Peas. 
I'm a B. I'm a B, I'm a B, I'm a, I'm a. All right, and the number one song. <laughs> The to- my tolerance for that song like ends uh, immediately upon playing it. I know you want to hear it. You're, you're like, Mike, please play more of that song. You know, I'm sorry. I have to draw the line somewhere. I just couldn't do it, guys. Sorry. Like, I, I, I know. I know. I'm a bastard, but what can I tell you? All right. The number one song in the nation. I'm not even going to do the drum roll because it doesn't even deserve it. It's Beyonce. Actually, it's Lady Gaga featuring Beyonce. Telephone. your damn phone if you don't want it ringing all the time. Jesus. I get mad at this song. This song causes me rage. You know, I need to put my my voice on auto tune. I'm gonna. I should do this show one day in auto tune. That'd be awesome. Let's talk about Barack Obama and the health care. I need to do that. I need to put it. I I do have auto tune on this. Uh, one of these buttons or switches or programs, something in here. I do have auto tune. I've I've played with it before. So anyway, that's your pop chart. I think that's enough of a show for me. Uh, because because you ask for it, you demand it. You want to know what else. What else is out there that might be making it onto the pop chart that actually has some redeeming quality to it? Well, I'll tell you. That Live Like We Were Dying song that uh, Chris Allen. When I'm out in the club and I'm sipping that bub, though, you're not going to reach my telephone. Just so you know, Jeff. Wanted to let you know that. What? (laughs) When I'm out in the club and I'm sipping that bub, you're not going to reach my telephone. Is that Farsi? What the hell are you talking about? I don't know. I don't even know what I'm talking I just thought I'd let you know. My telephone. Sipping that bub and you're not going to reach my telephone. How gay. All right. Uh, just missing the countdown. At number 11, you have this uh, live like we were dying here. I mean, I didn't cue it up properly. This song is like... At least tolerable. Tolerable by 2010 standards. It kind of grew on me a little bit, I will admit. It's one of those songs that after you hear it about 734 times, you, you decide that you're numb to it and it doesn't bother you. Actually, it's really not even that bad. Some songs some songs just bother you like that. Number 12, uh, I see Train is here. Hey, Soul Sister. Uh, 
I'm actually a pretty big Pat Monahan fan, so. I see the script is uh, rising quickly up the chart. Uh, number, let's see, 13, the break even. I like this song. It's actually, it's got real instruments and no auto tune. I know, it's like. Just pray to a God that I don't believe. Believe it or not, there actually are songs without auto tune. I got time while she got freedom. Let's see what else we've got. Um, One Republic is still there, uh, down at number seventeen. All the right moves. Daughtry at number twenty-three. Life After You. Taylor Swift with Today. Let's see. Today was a fairy tale. That's at number 25. I'm not a big Taylor Swift fan myself. John Mayer with Heartbreak Warfare at number 28. I hear he doesn't even use the N-word in that song. Good for him. They say bad things happen for a reason. Rob Thomas at number 31 with Someday. You know, that's actually a good song, too. I, again, I like Rob Thomas. Lifehouse at number 32. I'm just looking for stuff on the pop chart that, you know, doesn't all sound the same. And there's Uncle Cracker at number 39. Not a fan, but it's not, at least it's not, uh, you know, hip hop. Number 40, Kelly Clarkson, All I Ever Wanted. Yeah, I think it's kind of over. Let's see. That's your look at your pop chart. So if you're looking for the good songs, uh, there's a few, uh, but you have to look, uh, you, know, you kind of have to scour it out and uh, you kind of have to look away from the top 10. Unless, unless you're like me and you like Lady Antebellum, which I do. So, you know, <laughs> big snaps for me. All right. Well, that's it. Uh, we're we're out of here. <laughs> Uh, tomorrow on the show, I'm sure we'll have more talk on healthcare. We'll get to more stuff. I mean, there's, there's, there's way too much to talk about as it pertains to all that. Unfortunately, um, I think we'll be talking about the healthcare issue and, uh, things related to it. Probably I'm going to guess, um, from now till, uh, Tish above into perpetuity. In other words, a long time. To see Kevin Durant, who might be having the best year of any player. He, he's having a better year, I think, almost than Kobe or LeBron James. He scored 45 points last night, Kevin Durant. It's, uh, it's too bad that it was in a loss to the Spurs, 99-96. Yeah, the Thunder scored 96 points. Kevin Durant had 45 of them.
How many games has he scored over 25 points this year? It's like 11,800, isn't it? It's, it's just... Dude is... And, you know, Amari Stoudemire is another guy who's... He was double teamed last night and just flew past two guys for a jam that... The, the the seven people that were in attendance at the Warriors game last night in Oakland, uh, they um, even they were ooing and aahing over that. He had 37 points. Yeah, uh, he had 37. Jason Richardson had 34 points. The Suns, I was disappointed. They only scored 133 against the Warriors. <laughs> Well, I mean, it was it was a, a hard-fought game. It was 133-131. I, was, I told you, I told you I was going to go and take the over. I wish I would have, and, uh, you know, if I could just get to Vegas. Uh, I'd bet the two nickels I have in my pocket right now. Only in a place where sports betting is legal, of course. That's, I would only advocate that you do it in a licensed casino, in Nevada. Or uh, Delaware. I think it's legal there now, too. If it is legal in Delaware, then do it there, too. Because I would never advocate doing anything else. Never. John McCain would smack me down for sure because, God forbid, we have gambling on the Internet. All right. Well, we'll see you tomorrow. Another edition of Michael Graff in Exile rolls your way then. Mike at KMGX.com, the email address. That's also our PayPal address, MichaelGraff.com for more info. Have a great night. See you tomorrow.